amazing. And it is, uh, here's how you know that all of this scripture is true. Because Jesus rose from the dead. All of it is true. It's true because when he rose from the dead, he said he was going to do that. He rose from the dead. He said, on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. And he did it. So that makes everything else that he said true. And it makes everything that led up to him living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, and rising on the third day true. It's all true. And it's beyond just a sincerity that says, well, you know, he was, people have a sincere belief. They really do believe it deep inside. What was different? The early church died. Not for necessarily what they believed in. They died for what they saw. What did they see? Jesus. They saw Jesus back from the dead. He really was dead. And now he's alive. And we get the benefit of that in rehearsing it and reviewing it and remembering it, but also to make sure that we're living it, that we're living out his resurrection life together. So if you would please open to John chapter 11. Those of you who are gospel astute, you'll recognize, wait a minute, that's not at one of the end of the gospel accounts that it talks about Jesus' resurrection. That's correct. This is talking about when he's talking about being the resurrection. John 11, we're going to look at verses 17 through 27. This is uh, coming up. I need to get you up to speed. We have uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, who are all uh, brother, uh, brother and two sisters, good friends with Jesus. They live in Bethany. Lazarus has died. He's sick. He's dead. Nothing can be done. Jesus has something else in mind. So we pick up in the story when Jesus is coming back to Bethany. Scripture says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she, sent, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Father, we ask that you would freshly amaze us at the glory that is the resurrected Christ. That we might understand the union that we have with you through him. And that we really would experience your resurrection life in our everyday meanderings and mundaneness. So we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My question for you this morning is this. Is Jesus your app or is he your operating system? There are nearly 2 million apps in the Apple Store. And there are nearly 2.5 million apps in the Android marketplace because Android's trying to be better than Apple at everything, and they can't be better at Apple. That's why they're trying so hard. 
I went and counted the apps on my phone the other day. I have 142 apps on my phone. Some I've never even opened. And they're there because they're factory. Apple puts them on there. I never used them. But I didn't think I had, I didn't think I had a lot because I don't use them all. So I don't have that many apps. I had 142 apps. Still do. I didn't delete any. 142 apps on my phone. And if you think about it, when you go looking at the different, they're usually broken up into about six categories. You have lifestyle apps, where it's fitness and dating and travel and food and music and sleeping patterns. I had a nap once that tracked my sleeping pattern. But then I said, this is ridiculous, because I put my phone next to a fan that blows on me all night, so how in the world is it hearing me breathing? So I deleted it. We have social media apps. We have utility apps, the calendar, the flashlight, the weather. We have games and entertainment apps. You can watch any show, anytime, anywhere. We have news and information apps. Maybe we visit those more than others. And we have productivity apps. Make us feel like we're getting something done. when we're not getting anything done, right? Because you can't remember to go use the app. That's the problem. It's like, this is going to help me remember. Nope, not when you don't use it. doesn't help anything. There's, look, one app that became very common this past year is Zoom. Probably didn't have that before a pandemic. And all of a sudden, what's this Zoom thing? Okay, let's put this on the phone or the iPad or an inferior Android device. <laughs> you have productivity apps like Evernote. I have a love-hate, well, I have a hate-hate relationship with Evernote because everybody has always, I'm like, for 10 years, people have told me, you've got to get on Evernote. You've got to use it. it. It's a life changer. All right. I have tried now three times. It's expensive to use Evernote. I have tried three times to the tune of like $70 a year to use Evernote. It's supposed to increase your productivity and stuff. I don't like it. I don't know what about me and Evernote that don't get along, but we don't get along. But everybody else swears by it. And when I tell other pastors that I don't use Evernote, they look at me like, did you just say Jesus didn't rise from the dead? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. No, I don't use it. Look, apps are created for the users to simplify or minimize or maximize or all of them. We're going to simplify, minimize, and maximize what we want out of life. So apps are based on giving us something that we feel will make us better, life go easier, or smoother. We have apps that we go to on a regular basis to inform and in order to see what's happening, in order to plan, look at the weather, look at the calendar. We have apps that we've all forgotten about. There are apps that our family and friend use that we can't figure out, and there are those apps that make, that make life make sense to us. We have our personal favorites. But listen, if we are not careful, our life with Jesus can be reduced to having Jesus as an app on our phones that we can click on when we get in a little distress so he can make our lives go smoother. We tap on him when we're in need of an answer, maybe direction to get somewhere and to help us get out of a jam if we're really spiritual. Jesus will come to us in notifications. He'll send us a scripture throughout the day, letting us know, just let the thumbs up. He'll, or, or maybe it's a whole devotion you can read, like you're super spiritual. I got it. 
a devotion. I can read about him. Those are apps. Now, let's consider operating systems. If you're like me, you still have a red dot with a white one in it because Apple keeps on sending out these updates and tries to force you to update. I get annoyed by that. I, I usually wait for my children to get through theirs, and I ask, are there any kinks or any weirdnesses? Because I've outweighed the operating system updates so they can get the kinks out, so I can get, like, 14.18, because that's how many times they're getting bugs out and stuff. But I digress. The operating system is the brain that powers literally everything on your phone. It powers all the apps. It's the heat, or the heart, rather. It's the heart. Think about it this way. It's the heart that pumps blood through the apps to get oxygen to them so they can breathe and work. In our passage this morning with Martha and Jesus' interaction, we read of Martha, I think he was looking for Jesus to be more of an app in her life to comfort her with her brother dying. But Jesus wasn't looking to be Martha's app. He wanted to be her operating system. That's the question for us. Is Jesus your app or is he your operating system? Do you seek to apply him to your life situations or to follow him within your life situations? Do you know the power of Jesus giving life and breath to everything you're about? Because that's what Jesus wants to know. When Jesus comes back to Martha, it's as if Martha is interacting with Jesus on Martha's terms. And we get into this mode too. We, we want a Jesus that's on our terms, that makes sense to us, that will bring us comfort and peace. Martha wanted that comfort and peace through her brother's presence with her. And she was even sympathetic to having a roaming signal when she tried to get Jesus to come back. The text didn't go through. It was roaming. Took four days. Sorry, Jesus. But if had, you, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Because I know that God gives you everything that you ask of him. She wanted to use Jesus' presence and power in order to preserve what she thought was life. And this is exactly what we do with Jesus. When pressure or discomfort comes, when distress comes, we look for Jesus to ease us back into that non-stressed environment. When we treat Jesus as an errand boy for our needs, we end up becoming slack with who he is, and namely his holiness. As we grow in Christ, we, we're blessed by becoming familiar with God. We can anticipate what he says about something, anticipate how he'll lead us and guide us in our lives because we think more like him. But we should never, ever become casual with God. Familiar, yes. Casual, no. Because we have a couple examples, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, of people who were casual with what God said was a standard for living with him, around him, and in him. In the Old Testament, we have a man named Uzzah. His mother didn't love him to name him Uzzah. And nobody subsequently is named Uzzah for what Uzzah did. King David's bringing back the Ark of the Covenant back into, it's with the Philistines, he's bringing it back into the people of God, and he has 
King David says, let's put the ark on this cart. It's a brand new cart. Nobody's ever used this cart before. Right out of the shop, we're going to have some oxen pulling the cart. As it's going, the wheel hits a rock. The, the ark begins to tumble. Uzzah, trying to preserve what's going on, just puts his hand out and touches the ark and dies immediately. David says, what up, God? What is, what's the reason for this? The Bible says David got angry with God until he realized Oh, the ark of God is to be carried, not put on a cart. It's to be carried by men who are in covenant relationship with God, not from oxen who are the sacrifice so, God, so people can still be in God's presence in his holiness. Now, God doesn't do that. God preserves something. He's not just striking down people left and right like that. We can't get the, the wrong impression from that. But what God is saying is, I'm serious about what I say, and I'm serious about holiness because God is serious about Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, we have a story that's kind of like this with a couple, a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had this idea because everybody is just the Holy Spirit's moving in the early church with the first few weeks of the church being established in the book of Acts and people are selling extra property that they have and giving it to the, the, what was then just the community, the believers that they had. They're, they're just blessing people who are in need. Well, Ananias and Sapphira say, we're going to pledge this amount. But what they did was hid the fact that they wanted to really add into their 401k while they were doing this in order to preserve something while looking like they're giving more. And they conspired to lie to the church about what they were giving. Ananias comes, the husband, before Peter. The Holy Spirit tells Peter what's going on. He says, wasn't it yours? Couldn't you do with whatever you wanted? Nobody forced you to sell this property, but yet you're coming and you're presenting yourself as somebody who you're not. Ananias falls dead. Some young men come and remove him. Sapphira comes, not knowing what's going on. She comes in. Uh, Peter says, tell me, Sapphira, did you all agree to sell it for such and such? We sure did. She dies. Why would God do something like that? Just, it's just, they were, they were trying to bless the church. Remember, God, God's not just spouting people off. He doesn't have these, like, trigger fingers. He's, he's using it as an example to preserve his holiness. Even for the new church, uh, the new church that was established after the resurrection, the church is established, God is communicating this. I still mean what I say. And our lives are worthy of everything that he says. But when we think Jesus is simply an app that we can go to, we will become slack with what he says about himself and about us. We will become slack about his holiness because holiness matters. It matters. The holiness matters on Good Friday. Good for us. Bad day for Jesus. Because it needed to be a holy sacrifice that was in our place. We should have died that death. It's a holy sacrifice that God says, now my wrath, my punishment towards sin is settled. So now I can be in fellowship with my people yet again. And that fellowship comes by faith. See, when we try to get Jesus on our terms, 
we just get a better version of ourselves because Jesus ends up being what we think is a better version of ourselves. But God's not out to give us a better version of ourselves. He's out to make us like Jesus because that is the king of all glory that our, uh, our eyes are to be toward and our hearts should be surrendered to because he's worthy. He is the life that we long for. Now, what does it mean to have Jesus on Jesus' terms? That's what Jesus tells Martha. It's all right, you thought by me being here it would preserve your brother's life, but that's something, I'm getting ready to show you something very different. Jesus was gracious with Martha's misunderstanding of his role in her life. And God's gracious with us because we misunderstand him all the time. We want to bring God to court whenever we disagree with him. We say, this is not right. I would like to bring God to court. In the very first book of the Bible that was written in Job, and we know Job's story, how uh, Satan's roaming around. God says, what'd you find? You just found faithful people. He's like, yeah, faithful people everywhere. They just love you because you blessed them. Okay, how about Job? Let's see, let's see what kind of faith Job has. Now, I take it all away. He, he'll curse you to your face. All right, take his stuff away. Satan goes out and takes all of his stuff away. All of his stuff, meaning all his possessions and his children. Satan comes back. God says, Job still loves me, doesn't he? Yeah. Touch his life. He'll curse you right to your face. All right. You can have him. Just don't kill him. Satan goes out and gives him these sores. The sores were so bad he took a piece of pottery and broke it and would scratch himself with these. We think we, we have miserable situations. Job's got a miserable situation, and out of his situation, he says this in Job 9. For God is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. See, what Job understands in this moment, and through all of it, Job never cursed God. Now, the, what was behind all of this story was that God was coming through with a proclamation that there is a righteous suffering that happens in life when there's no reason for it other than to point to what Jesus would do. And what, when we experience that suffering, when it's not the result of our own personal sin or, or just idiotic behavior, God is saying, I'm letting you shine with what Jesus did. Job was shining with what Jesus would do. We shine with what Jesus did. There is a righteous suffering, but God's, God's after our hearts, just like he was after Job's heart. Job, at the end of that book, Job said, before I had just heard about you with my ears, but now my eyes, they see you. And I know who I really am, because I see who you really are. Because no matter what suffering we walk through, the grievous, any, any grievous thing that we could ever encounter in life, God will show us himself in unique ways to where we say, even Job never, never got an answer. It's never recorded in the book of Job. But he was able to say, my eye sees you. That's enough for me. That's where Jesus wants us to see. He wants us to see him. God the Father wants to bring us in so we see Jesus. Because he is our life, Jesus graciously and lovingly reorders Martha's concept of who he is. 
He's not there just as an extension to make life smoother. She had Jesus in the wrong seat on the bus. Jim Collins' book years ago, Good to Great, he says you need to have, and, and people who lead, you need to understand your position in the bus, you need to have people in the right spots. And he used the analogy, you have to be on the right spot, in the right seat on the bus. Every other day I was driving and saw a bumper sticker. Didn't know they still had these bumper stickers, but the bumper sticker was, God is my co-pilot. That sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Let me destroy that concept for you. God's not interested in, in being a tag-along to your life adventure. You know, we pull up to Jesus. You know, I think Jesus would be great in life. Jesus, hop in the back. This is great. This is going to be so cool. Whenever I need you, you're right there. This is awesome. But Jesus just stands outside the door. All right. You want to sit in the front seat? Okay. Get in the front seat, Jesus. That's cool. You're my co-pilot. Let's do this thing. Jesus still stands there. What's the problem, Jesus? We see, if I'm in the back seat or the passenger seat even, you give me some little prominence in your life, you're still in control. Jesus says, let me drive. Surrender all control, and I'll be the life that you're looking for. And trust that where I take you is where I want to lead you in order, in order to show you more of my love and more of myself. See, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can have this slight control in our lives and have Jesus come and just bless it. He's an app when we do that. Jesus, when he talks to Martha, revealed his nature. He revealed that his life, I am the resurrection and the life, that his life is stronger than death itself. He is the resurrection. And he, in his resurrection and in his life, he bridges the separation that we experience because of our sin. The Bible tells us we are separated from him because of our sin. And it's only Jesus that can bridge that separation. So he's saying to her, that separation will be bridged. Death won't even have the last word. Because of who he is. Jesus revealed to Martha that, that he's, he wants to be the operating system. When he's the operating system, it makes sense of life. He is the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And it's a life that makes dead things come alive. As if it were no longer dead. He's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. He calls out, somebody move the tomb. Jesus, it's stinky. Do you really do you want us to remove the stone? Remove the stone. And he calls out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus doesn't, doesn't come out like some G. Like, hey, what's up? He's bound. He's hopping out. Literally hopping out. And Jesus says, somebody untie him. <laughs> Everything's got a reason. Why does he do that? Because, look, it's the picture of what God does for us. He raises us to life, but we still have these entrapments and wrappings. And he wants the people in our lives, in the church, and the community of believers to be able to help us undo those who experience the healing. But more than that, we walk in the life that Jesus just called us to. And so we don't, we're, we, death no longer has the victory. It no longer has the death, uh, the, the death word, <laughs> the last word, I said death word. It no longer has the death word. 
over our lives because we can walk in his newness. And Jesus then reveals how to get this life to Martha when he asks the question, do you believe this? See, Jesus comes to every one of us and asks us the same exact question. Because growing up, where we've grown up, no matter where it is, it's the United States, everybody knows about Jesus. So our struggle really isn't whether he's there or not. Our struggle is, did he really mean what he said? He really did. And Martha responds to him and says this, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now listen, she's no longer asking, she's no longer answering him for the benefit that she's going to get with her brother. He removed her, her concept, her attention on her brother. She rem- she's removed her concept of comfort and peace in this life. She's looking at Jesus now, and she says to Jesus, I believe who you say you are, because it's got to be a Jesus on Jesus terms. When we trust Jesus as our operating system, he changes us from the inside out. He changes our nature. He's revealed his nature because he wants us to understand a new nature that we are to have. John 3, 3 says this, Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, that's a nature concept. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A nature concept, new Creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's nature words in this. When we believe Jesus for salvation, when he really is the operating system, we get a new nature. We need a new nature in order to experience the life that Jesus said he is for us. When, when we are born in this life, the Bible describes that we are born with a sinful nature that's dead in terms of ability. We can do things, but we always choose the dead things. We always choose the sinful things out of our relationship with God, and, and it, it, it makes us feel the separation that we have because of sin. Now, we don't sense him. Our spiritual component with him is dead. We don't sense him, and no matter how hard we try, we try to sense him, and we try with good morals and performance. We try to sense him and try to get him to pay attention to us, but it's not going to work. See, we need a new nature. If you, take, if you take a piece of steak and put it in front of a sheep, what's going to happen? Nothing. It's not in the sheep's nature to eat the meat. Just like you can't take seaweed and give it to a lion, Alex, Madagascar. The lion will never, ever change his nature in order to eat the seaweed. The sheep will never change his nature in order to be able to eat meat. The Bible tells us that our nature is against God, and he's the only one who can change our nature. 
He accomplishes that change when we trust that Jesus lived a perfect life in order to die a death in our place on the cross to take the punishment of God toward our sin. And when we trust him completely in full surrender, our will, our operating system changes it. The Bible says he takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh that can now, it's alive to God and can sense his presence, can sense his love, can sense his goodness. My question is this, do you have this nature? Do you have this life? You know, if you feel, you feel even this morning, maybe you've never, you've never uh, uh, solidified in your own heart, or maybe you've wandered off the fact that God really is worthy of everything. And we start to put our own control over things. Start to apply our own control and expect God to bless it. Expect God to still be with us. If there's that contention, and maybe you're in your heart, you're saying, I don't want to do that anymore. Maybe you realize this morning you're separated from God and you're recognizing, I don't want that anymore. We do know what? Somebody who is dead in their sin can't sense those things. So could it be that God's already come into your heart saying, I want to change your nature. I want to breathe life into you so you, are, you do come alive and you're able to interact with me in a fellowship relationship that's restored, that can never be broken by sin. We sang earlier, no, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever separate us from his love that Jesus has won for us. When you sense an awakening in your soul toward God, here's my encouragement. Run toward it. Run toward it. And it looks like repenting of your sin, repenting of your arrogant control over your life and saying, Jesus, I trust you. And I trust you with everything. I trust you for that new life. And the Spirit comes in that moment and comes and lives inside of us. Usually, our, usually, yeah. When we say yes to Him and we do repent and trust Him, that's the first fruit of what He's already, it's the first evidence of what He's already accomplished in our hearts. So I ask you, do you believe this? If, you, if that answer is yes, trust Him. Trust Him. You begin, we want to help you begin to, in, to investigate what that relationship is, what it means, what it does. So here's the cur- courageous thing is, let somebody know. It could be simply this. Jeff said, I believe it. Believe it. Most of us, I'm seeing faces of members of the church, most of us have made this commitment. So we want to keep on walking in it be able to experience the life that God has for us. Amen. Pray. Lord, I thank you that as we rehearse and recall and remember the resurrection of our Savior, it's like taking out an old photo album of our life with you. And we can see and sense 
those, those points in our life when, when resurrection life was experienced and we look through that album and we're reminded of your faithfulness. God, I pray today that you would, you would start an album with some here. That their trust in you would begin a story and a process of them seeing you and you operating everything about them. God, give us all the grace to surrender our control and how we want to sometimes wrestle that control from you. God, we want to trust you. And we ask by the power of your spirit that we would be, uh, feel the welcoming of your grace to trust you more and more and more. And God, we do ask that you would revolutionize everything about our thoughts, everything about our actions, everything about our worlds, because we are experiencing the life that Jesus promised us to be.